Hello and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, play, and stumbling forward through life. I'm Paige Scott, your announcer and co-host for this evening, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to another episode of this experiment in conversation and music recorded live from the Oxford Room of the Aristocrat Pub. Our guests tonight are entrepreneur Tom Batista the half-stepsisters, plus all you good folks who have filled the Oxford room tonight. <laughs> now please welcome your host, the editor of Quill, the magazine of the Society of Professional Journalists, the author of the new book, the little book of misquotations, and a guy who was once heckled by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Your host, Lou Harry. Actually, I heckled them, but that's a difference. We'll get to that story. Uh, we've had a few months of a gap here. Thank you for, uh, for all showing up this time. Having a few months of a gap meant, for me, that putting together this episode was a little more challenging than usual. That's the way uh, writing sometimes goes for me. The more I feed the habit, the smoother the work goes. Take a break, and the obstacles tend to multiply. I, that sort of got me thinking about the things that block us and the things that push us forward. About 15 years ago, I was commissioned by a publisher to write a book called Creative Block, which consisted of a few hundred writing prompts along with advice from a range of creative folks. These included one of my favorite children's book authors, Anna Gross-Nickel-Hines, uh, my buddy, comic Paul F. Tompkins, novelist Nicholas Sparks, all offering tips for getting over creative stagnation. The point wasn't just to address writers, but anyone whose work or hobby faces that dread stoppage. Now, people imagine creative block as something, st someone staring at a computer or a sheet of paper, unable to think of what to put down. I've never had much of that kind of problem. But this summer, I've had a different kind of creative block. My first instinct is to blame the country and where we are right now. Bruce Springsteen has a song called One Step Up, One Step Up and that sounds optimistic until you hear that the next line after One Step Up is two steps back. A lot of us feel like we've taken a lot more than two steps back in the last few years. As a journalist, I'm concerned. As a parent and grandparent, I'm concerned. As a human being, I'm kind of terrified. As a playwright, I'm kind of stuck in a loop. Now, trivial example. I've been working on a new play for about a year and a half now. That's not unusual. Some of my projects have taken much longer than that. But so far, what I have to show for it are three scenes, adding up to about 30 pages. About a year ago, working on the same play, I had three scenes adding up to about 70 pages. <laughs> now, mathematicians or physicists may not understand how that happens, but I think most writers do. When I teach writing workshops, I advise writers to try to get their first draft out quickly. Just write. Avoid going back. I make an analogy to sculptors, even though I know next to nothing about sculpting. I tell them that the first thing you have to do is get all your clay dumped in the center of the room. That's the first draft, or in other fields, your brainstorm. Then you have to find the sculpture. You have to find the work, find your play, find your project from inside that. Now, I didn't listen to my own advice on this one. 
So I have these four characters who I'm very interested in, but every time I sit down to write, I feel like another element from the world, the news, the struggles of people I know and those I don't know, an anecdote from a book or article, some new ingredient wants to be added to that mix. So I fold it in and I start rewriting from the beginning and sometimes the resulting draft is a few pages shorter uh, than what I started and sometimes it's longer, but it's always different. What if she, what if he, wait, maybe this happened to her, maybe that's why he's, so I'm caught in that fundamental writer's trap of trying to write the play instead of trying to write a play. The longer we wait, the more we think this play, this story, this song has to say everything rather than say something. It has to tell the story rather than tell a story. I think it's the same way with the efforts that some of us have to make the world and this country a better place. We want to do everything. And because of that, it's sometimes hard to do something. With so many creative folks here on this episode, I want to dig into some of that over the course of today. How do you create in an environment that seems hostile to the new? How far along does an idea, a song, or a project have to be before you're comfortable sharing it? What do you have to let go of, and how much trust do you need to truly work collaboratively with other people? When should an artist or an entrepreneur think like a lone wolf, and when does the pack make things better? We've got some people here tonight who I think you're going to be really interested in. We've got the Half Step Sisters coming on later. And I'll be chatting with Tom Batista, whose creative work ranges from opening restaurants to making sure Jimmy Buffett's tours function properly. For now, though, let's welcome my co-host for this episode, Paige Scott. I've admired, yeah. <laughs> I have admired and enjoyed Paige for a long time. In addition to being an inspiringly prolific creative force in central Indiana as a composer and music director and actress, she also provided one of the single funniest moments I've ever seen on an Indiana stage in the play, The Great Bike Race. Mm -hmm. Some of you saw that? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's got a few projects rolling right now, including work on the Cookie Dough Show for Indie Fringe, writing material for A Very Phoenix Xmas at the Phoenix Theater, and recently turned from, returned from a workshop at the University of Iowa with playwright KT Peterson. Welcome her again. Now, you seem to always be juggling multiple projects. Uh, yeah, I'm, I am a master theatrical multitasker. Uh, yeah. How do, how do you keep track, not keep track, obviously, but how do you prioritize? How do you figure out where the energy is going to go at a given time? Um, I, uh, you were talking about blocks. Creating deadlines for yourself is a way that I can, that, like mm. I have a calendar mm -hmm. where I just write down everything that I need to be like when I had like three jobs at once, I would prioritize that along mm. with projects. So it's mm -hmm. kind of, you do the hard, the, you do, I mean, you do the easy task first, like if, uh -huh. if 10 pages are due, just knock out the 10 pages and then right. go to the more difficult things. And just, yeah, I always yes. wrestle with that of whether to go after the big project first and chip away at that or take things off oh, the list. And no, have the you done this? ones first. Then I'll do sometimes, I'll have my list of things I need to do and then I'll do something else and then I'll add it to the list and cross it out right away. Yes, <laughs> yes, because- It feels good. Yeah, it feels good because your brain likes to, likes to, it likes that little square with a check mark in it. Right. <laughs> it just does. Like it's addicting. Where you're like, oh, like even stupid mundane stuff, like, like stuff around the house. Like, oh, I'm gonna wash this dish now. <laughs> Ding. 
it, 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 yeah, and if you just start applying that with uh, w- with regular, uh, just keeping a regimen of how many words you write mm-hmm. a day. Um, I think what Hemingway wrote like two hundred words a day, and that was it. Wow! Like, and other people will say if you find the right word, that's enough, and yeah. that, that's pretty much bullshit uh, to me. But <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're yeah. when you're writing something on assignment, like you know that you have to write X amount of songs for the Phoenix Theater's mm-hmm. holiday show. Yep. Does some? I mean, you're sitting at the piano or wherever you sit. I don't know where you sit. Yeah, it's me and Davy Pelsu, actually. That was it, a collaboration we didn't write. Yeah. But if you have sort of an idea for a song, it does, sometimes you go, wait a minute, that's a really good song. I'm going to go down that road, but it's not right for that show. Oh, we we at the minute. Uh, I mean, when me and me and Davy were in the room writing writing some of this music, I would say the bad idea first and just <laughs> apologize and say I have to get it out of my head, or it'll clog up. Like it backs up, it backs mm-hmm. up the rest of the flow. So like, yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, not necessarily a bad idea, but an idea that idea not that right just doesn't that. work, an idea that that's garbage for that particular for that yeah, particular. yeah. But do you still log that somewhere? You might be able to use it for something. Oh yeah, I'll I'll write some. Yeah, if I say something stupid that I can use for something else, I want to use it. So I don't like I don't like wasting anything, Lou. <laughs> One of the challenges in in particularly here in Central Indiana, but I think in a lot of markets, is that there's not really a system for. For workshop, there's not a whole lot of room to fail. That's correct. Um, you know, people talk about Rodgers and Hammerstein. And when you say that, people think of Oklahoma, Carousel, Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. But they don't talk about me and Juliet. They don't talk about uh, uh, Pipe Dreams. Yeah. These shows that bombed Did, and disappeared yeah. or didn't do particularly well. Um, you know, not many, you know, unless you're a Sondheim head, you're not talking about anyone can whistle. Mm-hmm. I think part of the issue here is once you have a show, it's out there. Yeah. Is, I mean, do you find that that you're sort of judged entirely on what's out there right now? Uh, uh could you rest? I'm sorry. You, that <laughs> no, was a no, lot. You know I mean? Thrown That's out. a lot. Like, That's a lot. Archive well, of awesome think, things that I understand. Right. But like, could you re- could you re- well, ask? The okay, let me try to rephrase I feel really it. Dumb right in a, now. No, in a market. No, not at all. Not at all. Because I'm rambling. Because I think in a market where there's not a whole lot of press about the arts, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of of consistency and attention to them. It feels like it's hard to get a second chance at something. Oh. It's hard. To, you know, no, very few. Yeah. World premiere, whether it's an opera somewhere in the country or a premiere play, it's hard to get that second. Hard enough to get the first one. It's harder oh, yeah. to get the second. Um, I think there. I think well here it's very it's very different in Indianapolis because there's probably maybe only four or five of us in this community that I know of mm-hmm. personally who are doing who. Who who there, there's only like maybe four people writing original musicals mm. here in Indianapolis. When you go to Chicago, when you go to go to New York, they're 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 all yeah. they're every rehearsal accompanist. That that's the end. A Tony Award winning musical is their end game. That is right. what they want when they're when they're there. Here I I feel like I I know that I'll never win a Tony. Well, like, we well that. I mean, like, I'll, like well, that's not <laughs> that's here not the cars here. Right, here. Here, I won't. But because like, it's, is that because it's hard to launch something here? I mean, you had two productions of your musical J. Air, mm-hmm. um, which got a chance. You got a chance to sort of mm-hmm. retool it in between. Well, there was a couple years apart, right? Yeah, yeah. There was uh, like a year and a half. What so. did you learn from the first production that helped the second production? Um, I think the the first one. The first one, I definitely learned uh, what. Uh, 
like uh, like finding the right word, like mm. realizing that some of the words were wrong. Mm -hmm. In the lyrics? In the lyrics and the book, mm -hmm. because frankly, I thought the book was a mess like the first time. <laughs> okay. But I just, but, but I was like, guys, we gotta do it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, but also like I've gotten a, I've, I've uh, kind of adapted into having a better, I, I, I pride myself on being a, a good self editor, mm -hmm. but like seeing that first round, yeah. I, and, and actually being able to like listen back on it on audio, on mm -hmm. an audio recording being like, oh, you didn't edit enough, girl, <laughs> you failed. But, but it's easy but, yeah. sometimes for people who get good actors doing their reading for the first time to think, we're there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just a matter of me getting a good production yeah. in order for, you know, me to become famous or this thing to become yeah. a huge hit. It's rare, I think, sometimes for creative folks to be able to analyze their own stuff and to say what you just mm -hmm. said. This was wrong. This didn't work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, 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 there's no, I really do hate some of the stuff that I, that I write. I know, like, <laughs> that's weird, but like, it's just like the, it, you don't believe in the right words. Mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. And actu actually, when we're t thinking about like finding the right words, I am I'm reading uh, Ben Folds' um, autobiography, mm -hmm. and he was talking. He he kind of um, his his father was a carpenter and would give him advice on just making something like making right. a table, making anything. Measure twice, cut once. Right. And that's kind of how mm. he started writing his music is that make sure every pattern, every right. everything that you want to say is the right word, right, mm -hmm. right key, right everything, measure twice, cut once right. so you can just go into the studio right. or go into a workshop and go in or go into the production instinctively knowing that what right. is flawed, mm -hmm. what is not flawed, yeah. and then th that's cut once. So being so critical. I mean, I spent, <laughs> yeah. I spent a decade working as a professional stand-up comic, uh, long retired from that. But in the clubs, I found that the comics who weren't going to move, weren't going to get continued work, are the ones that blame the audience all the time. Oh. It's so easy to blame the audience, blame the critics, blame, rather than look at what is or isn't working. Yeah, blame yourself for not being clear. There you I go. I mean, like, <laughs> that's, that, that's, uh, and that's also really hard because we're being creative. You have, you got your rainbows and flowers and <laughs> unicorns jumping through the fields. Like it's really, it's really <laughs> distracting in there. Right. And it's hard to like, I, am, I, am I making sense at all? Somebody has said, and I, it's not me, but somebody said something to the effect of, you know, a, a playwright can always rewrite. Actors can fine tune it the next time. Mm -hmm. But if you're a builder, you can only plant vines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. about it. Once <laughs> That's the building's true. up, you're kind if of... your house is lopsided, <laughs> somebody <laughs> didn't do something. Right. <laughs> let's, let's lead into uh, our next guest who has been creative in, a, in a multiple different ways. Uh, Indianapolis would look a lot different if it wasn't for Tom Batista. Uh, as the owner of East End Properties, Fletcher Place Investments, he helped transform two of the city's districts in ways that, well, we'll talk about that. He's also just back as of this afternoon uh, from his longstanding summer gig as stage manager for Jimmy Buffett's tour. If you think those things uh, don't have anything in common, you are wrong. What they have in common is Tom. Welcome him. <laughs> 
I want to. Thanks, Paige. <laughs> I'm tempted to do a coin flip to decide which of those areas we want to hit first. But since you just are off the plane, tell me, where were you 48 hours ago? Uh, 48 hours ago, I was in Boston, Massachusetts. And what were you doing in Boston, Massachusetts, sir? Well, we were eating, of course. <laughs> um, 24 hours ago, we were doing a show in Great Woods, which is their outdoor uh, venue, kind of like Deer Creek here. Well, what, how did you originally, this is as stage manager, which you've been yes. doing for how long? 26 years for Jimmy. 26 years for Jimmy. How did that relationship start? It's a long story. So, <laughs> who wants to hear it? <laughs> Do you want it the start of the whole? Go ahead, start the being whole thing. In a business? Go ahead. I'll take a sip I of volunteered, diet soda. Well, I majored in history at IU. That's really how, no. I, uh, <laughs> first the earth cooled. And so, then I was preparing to drop out of society after it was during the Vietnam War. And I'd bought some land in southern Indiana and I was going to um, drop out, literally live off the land and drop out of society. I was home uh, right after I'd graduated and I got a call from a friend of mine from high school. I went to her buff and uh, he asked me to come and help him put on a outdoor, uh, it's a uh, festival with like 10 or 12 different acts. It was going to be in uh, Raceway Park and the county got a court injunction and wouldn't let him hold it and they'd already and it was um, mark whoever owned karma records he was promoting the show or producing it and they rented bush stadium in downtown indianapolis to, to hold the concert the problem was they usually took three days to set up and they only had 24 hours so they got the keys to the place at uh, noon on a friday and the show started at noon on saturday now this is so this, this is in this 1972. Is this the one that had Chuck Berry and Fleetwood Mac? It had Mac Chuck and Berry and it had uh, <laughs> "It's a Beautiful Day" and I can't even remember. Uh, you know, I think all I saw the, the poster. Foghat was on that. Yeah, bill. Foghat. Fleetwood it, Mac. And so, um, you know, minor acts that never went anywhere. Well, one hit wonders. Well, I was dropping out of society. I didn't really pay attention. I didn't have, I didn't have a DVD. Well, they weren't DVD. I didn't no. have a, I didn't have a record player. Time I wasn't, machine. I wasn't really eight into tracks. it. But, We're talking eight tracks. But probably. so my buddy calls me and says, can you come down and help him? There probably won't be any money to pay you. But if you come down, you can see how rock and roll works from backstage seemed interesting to me so i said okay and went down and got there at noon on friday and we worked all through the night till the uh, show started at noon on saturday all through the show till 11 o'clock that night when it was over we put away the expensive sound gear you know the boards the consoles and everything and then um the guy that was there said can you come back he told everybody that gotten in for free and volunteered to work for free come back tomorrow at noon which was sunday and then we'll take everything else down all the scaffolding there were three semis worth of stuff and so um i said sure <laughs> i was the only one that came back so I, I called some of my friends from high school, and they came down and actually, you know, helped, uh, helped him take this down. The guy's name was Bruce DeForest, and he had worked for Bill Hanley Sound and Tom Field Lighting and had done Woodstock. Yep. And they, and... Um, you might have heard of it. Yeah, you might have heard of that one. But so then um, he said that he was going to build a nightclub in New York, and if I was interested in helping him do that, and, you know, being 
getting ready to drop out of society <laughs> where my closest neighbor, you know, was a half a mile away, literally on a gravel road to going to New York City where there's 20 million people. I'm going, well, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and of course, he asked me how much and I doubled my salary that I was making working labor doing concrete work. And he said, oh, no problem. And he would give me a place to stay. And it happened to be at Bleecker and Bowery, which is one of the hippest parts of New York now. But when I was there, it was all bums. But that's how I got in the business. Uh, when we finished, oh, we built, the nightclub was called The Bottom Line. Which and it, you may have heard of, it a was legendary. There, it was there for club. 30 years. And it was just the greatest thing. When I came back for the, I had no idea they were involved in the music business. But when I came back for the opening, it was Mick Jagger. He didn't open it. It was Dr. John, who recently passed away, was the opening act. But then everybody got up on stage, including Mick Jagger and Edgar and Johnny Winter. Um, um, not Carly, uh, James Taylor was there, but so there was just all these More people hit wonders. in the music, <laughs> in the music business were there and I had no idea they were involved in it uh, to that depth. So it, it ended up after that was over, I came home and then he called me and he said, asked me if I would go out with him and be an assistant carpenter on David Bowie, which was the <laughs> 1974 diamond dogs tour. <laughs> which is the biggest tour that ever gone out that was uh, designed by Jules Fisher, a famous lighting designer in New York. Um, and so I said, now, sure. Curious, uh, with any of these, did the acts pay any attention to the people working backstage? I mean, were it, any of them it, in those make day, eye contact? In those days, we stayed, we traveled together, not in the same van or anything. Uh -huh. But David was afraid of flying. He didn't fly, but we all flew together and we were on buses together. Um, and we stayed in the same hotels, so it was a different, it wasn't us and them kind of like now, mm -hmm. it's, you know, the artiste, even though mm -hmm. his management company wanted him to be the artiste, and they had signed uh, one person to take care of his every need. I mean, he didn't have to, she, she, Corinne Schwab would get him anything, everything he needed, anytime, all the time, 24 hours a day, she was always with him. And that's kind of what the management companies kind of mm -hmm. started doing. That was Main Man Limited, the same people who did, uh, Turn Johnny Cougar into, uh, or, yeah, into Mellencamp. So it was really kind of exciting. So you're touring with Bowie for how long? Uh, two tour, two tours. We did uh, 14 weeks, and then we took a month off, and then 14 weeks again. In in the middle of the la the second 14 weeks, they changed to uh, we were in Vegas and we built a show, uh, all white psych. It changed from this huge extravaganza to this all white psych with. Um, uh, Luther Vandross was one of the singers that was behind scrims on the first leg of the tour with David Sanborn, by the way. <laughs> and then the one that wonders continue. They, they were never, they were never introduced to the audience or anything. They were just backup players. And then after, uh, he decided to quit doing this huge hard tour. We, we did this white psych thing and all these white risers and white floor. And of course, um, uh, What's <laughs> I feel like an idiot right now, no, but no, I just please. got off a plane. But um, so Bowie was yeah. He it, took it, out. So he, he totally revamped the tour. He revamped the, the whole tour. tour in the military. Stopped. <laughs> he said, "Forget you. I'm not going to do all this." And so wow. uh, there was Luther Vandross, a 300 pound black guy, kid. I mean, we would hang out in Jack in the Box restaurants. <laughs> It, it, I had a picture save of Save the rest him. of the per diem? Yeah, to save the per diem. And uh, yeah, so it, wow. it's been quite an adventure. But so that's how I got in the business. And then after you get in the business, 
it was just kind of really fun. Mm -hmm. I, I actually never did drugs, so it was really profitable for me. So I was... <laughs> And, and that's how, that's how, that's how I got, um, I was able then to come back after tours and just buy another piece of property. What was so, the, okay, let's, let's step into that world okay. for a second. So you come back here, what makes you go, okay, I've got six months till the next tour, I'm going to rehab a property and, and. Well, because the lady that lived next door to us when I grew up, um, her husband had passed away, and she asked me to buy her house, and so that got me started in it. So I, as soon as I did that, it was next door to my uh, family's house on Fall Creek Boulevard, mm -hmm. and um, I never had to pay rent or anything again. So I rented <laughs> rooms to kids from uh, ITT Tech, which was at 38th and uh, Fall Creek at the time, and that's... Now, there's some people, I think, seem to be built with the born with the repair gene and other people are born with the I'll just throw it out and buy a new one gene but I but I doubt that I think that there's something that gets taught I mean well, it was, is taught. was their family Yeah well my dad had a drugstore at 24th in Illinois and he had uh, connected to it were eight apartments upstairs and it was uh, basically in the ghetto uh, kind of like Tally's corner if you mm -hmm. ever read that book um, and we were always repairing, you know, things. And so that's how I learned how to work. And in the summers then, in high school and college, I worked for this old man, uh, Finn Thornton, who has passed away now. And he taught me the concrete business. And so, and also, he taught me how to be organized on a job and always be prepared for, you know, anything that could come up. Because when you had other people working, you never want them to stand around and do nothing. And that's kind of why I'm a good stage manager is mm -hmm. because I'm always thinking of what we can do to make it more efficient. It's interesting to see how those two seemingly disconnected worlds exactly. feed off of each other. You, you could have a second grade education and do what I do for Buffett. Mm. You just have to be able to manage people and be nice and talk clearly. <laughs> And, and as you go around the country now, more and more places hire labor-ready people. They, they can't take stage direction. So it, get, it does get frustrating, and I start, you know, by the end of the night, I'm talking probably like a dog to them, so, you know, t exactly pointing out every how to lift up a box or I mean, just how to do simple things that um, a lot of kids don't know today. And it's kind of sad for me to go around thinking that all these young people involved in being stagecraft, they're never going to be able to send their kids to college. You know, the unions have been run shot over. All the working relationships uh, or the working uh, rules that you had are not there anymore. I was able, you know, to send my kids, you know, to college. Mm -hmm. And I, I just don't, and buy houses and do things. I just, I'm afraid of what's happened to our society, actually. What are some of the those unexpected problems that show up either in a tour or as your uh, working on a property. What are the things that you know you didn't you woke up not expecting to well, be on your problem list? Yeah. Well, we um, recently bought a building uh, to do a cinema, mm -hmm. and we had no idea that um, where it is. It's in this uh, Spades Park, uh, Windsor Park neighborhood, next to Pogues Run, and there is a 12-foot layer of soft clay underneath that whole area. It used to be a swamp. We had no idea, even though. When we would go in this old church, we could tell that the stairs were sagging both, you know, outside both sides of the building, in the front and the back. We should have said, well, wait a minute, um, this is bad. We ended up having to take that church down and put in 120 
two-foot diameter, 25-foot deep pylons in the ground where they take a big drill, they drill down, they fill it and compact gravel in it all the way up and then have to pour grade beans. So before we started, you know, we were a lot of money in the hole. I was going to say, how many figures really does that add to your estimated yeah, budget? Way, way too much. Yeah. But the, we're really passionate about what we do. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, for, we just go ahead and we're moving ahead. And we, we've never really done stuff for just thinking entirely about money. It's not that way. We buy buildings, old buildings, and fix them up. And um, we've pretty much helped a lot of people start their little businesses and stuff. So we feel like we enable these people that are passionate to do things. Like uh, Regina Mahalik, she mm-hmm. didn't, you know, she wandered into our building on Mass Avenue and we were holding it. And Sherry, my wife, you know, noticed her red shoes. I just remember her talking about that. She took her into that space and she said, this would make a great restaurant. And Regina had just gotten back from Europe. Her husband had worked for Cummins and she wanted to do this great, you know, farm to table restaurant, even though no one called it farm to table at the time. And that's kind of how that happened. And we helped her do it. That so. was our bistro, which was yeah, one our of the bistro. leading restaurants uh, in the Mass Avenue um, area. That I'm very interested in that kind of serendipitous connection, the way you, you know, run into something. You know, it's not like you graduated with this master plan of what you were going to do. How much of what you end up doing involves happening to have a conversation with somebody that leads to... You just have to have your blinders off. You, no matter what you major in, and I tell kids this all the time, that might, that's probably not what you're going to be doing you know, in the future. So just keep your blinders off and be willing to take a chance. Now, you were a history major? History major. Specializing Latin in Latin American history. Latin American history. Well, Che Guevara was pretty excited to me. We now have a Havanese dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's your college money. So there's a, yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, I want to jump back a little bit to to Buffett. How how did that was that just did you just think that was another gig when you got the first? No, no, no. it's a, it's a coveted gig to work for Jimmy Buffett. He's just he has a great reputation in the industry. And uh, how I got tied into that, um, my little brother's roommate at <laughs> IU, who I got in the business, was working for um, a religious act out of uh, Nashville. Um, called Michael W. Smith mm-hmm. and sure. they had come into town and I was actually working at a show somewhere else and they were at the convention center. I went down to visit him and this is after I'd stayed off the road for eight years to raise our children. We have two kids and to help Sherry raise the kids and just be around as a dad. I kind of stayed home and just worked out of the local. And so um, he, I went down to visit him, and I just said, if you ever have someone that needs a vacation, I could do a two-week thing. My <laughs> wife would let me do that, no problem. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> It would be really, really easy. You know, I know I could talk her into it. And <laughs> the next day, his uh, ca- head carpenter on the tour got a call from Bruce Springsteen, and he was going to go to Bruce Springsteen uh, and dump Michael W. Smith. He called me. I called Sherry and said, Sherry, could you? And she only said, how much? And goodbye. <laughs> is, is that right? <laughs> so it was, and so it was, For those listening at home, the <laughs> anecdote was verified by his wife. <laughs> it, was, it was three weeks on, um, 
two weeks off and then four weeks, and that was the whole tour. It turned out that the people, the management uh, team that was doing that show, the whole crew, the production manager, they, they all uh, did religious shows in the wintertime, and then in the summer did Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just right. kind of you know, this praying and sinning thing. It, was kind of, it, ba- it balanced out. But so at the end of our run, that four weeks, Michael W. Smith added an extra week of shows. They were at like Kings Island and these smaller places, not really big arenas, not really that hard of shows. And the production manager came to me because they all had to leave and go do Buffett. And he said, he asked me if I would stay. He knew I was more qualified than just being the carpenter at that point. And so I said, uh, I'll do it on one condition that if you ever have an opening on Buffett, any position, I'll take it. And he said, okay. And a year later, uh, their stage manager quit or retired and he gave me the job and that's been 26 years later wow (laughs) how in the in those 26 years have you seen how has his act evolved and how has the audience evolved it's kind of god bless the parrot heads every one of them (laughs) they bring their kids it's not like a big drug and it's they do drink and they do a song called get drunk right. and you know what right. but it's like but basically it's a family thing it's a lot of times parents will take their kids to that show first and anybody who has a boat on a lake at mm-hmm. the ocean they all listen to jimmy buffett music so you have this hard uh core crew of people that are love water mm-hmm. and families and so what happens is they pass it father to son mm-hmm. or, and then yeah. kids i mean and so you'll see in the audience and Jimmy is so sharp that I, we were just doing a show, not in Boston, I maybe we were in New York, and he noticed that there was a couple of families with little kids in it. And so he called an audible to do uh, Jolly Mon, which is this song that every little kid knows that if they're into Buffett at all. Mm-hmm. And he just, he's just that great of an entertainer. That now I, would, As a critic, I have found I am seem to be alone in defending the Broadway musical Escape to Margaritaville, oh. <laughs> which I took actually a, I hosted a busload of folks to see it in Chicago before it went to New York. Now it got blasted by the critics in New York. Yeah, did. did you see the show? We did. And we what did you guests. think of the show? I like the show. It, it actually made a statement. You know, uh, this. I can't remember the whole, I forget things all the time about music or whatever, but uh, in the show, this one lady was getting kind of screwed, and finally she stood up for herself and said, Mm -hmm. you know, forget this guy, this is what what I'm doing, and she stood Mm -hmm. up for herself, and that was a pretty redeeming part of it for me. I thought, you know, and I'm not somebody who's encyclopedic in my knowledge of Jimmy Buffett, I've never been to a concert. I thought it was a fun, a good enough show. I'm looking forward to some regional theaters picking it up and doing that oh, show. And they will. I think they will. Uh, uh, actually, Frank Marshall is working on a production of it right now to take around. Oh, really? So it may, so it may still tour. Regional. Yes, fantastic. It will tour. Um, that's good to know. And, Do you know I, who Frank Marshall is? Oh, right? yeah. Okay. Do you guys know who Frank Marshall is? No. Uh, I don't know either. He's a... One of Kennedy the Marshall, producers. Kennedy Marshall Productions. Right. Leading producers uh, in, Hollywood, in Hollywood, Spielberg stuff. All, the, yeah, all this that is stuff. I mean, he's huge. Big player. Now, some of those folks do show up at these concerts, Oh, They right? do, and most of them leave. You know, yeah. they go to, and they say hi to Jimmy, and they're there for a minute, and then they leave. But yeah. uh, 
uh, Uncle Warren is what he calls Warren Buffett. Stayed for the whole show. Pulls up, pulls into the venue with a in an old raggedy station wagon with his security, which is his guy who's been with him forever that couldn't hurt a flea. And goes to our show, and he stays the whole damn time. So at the end of the show, it's really hectic because the band always does a quick out, and we, mm-hmm. you know, with our hundred stagehands, attack the stage, and we had to wait for him to kind of. <laughs> Get out of there. But it was great. I mean, it was really great that he did that. Now, have you had any thoughts about retiring to a Margaritaville community? You know, no, and we make... (laughs) The wife just laughed. (laughs) We make jokes about it to the band that they're going to end up playing the nursing home in the retirement community. Buffett is developing retirement communities, Multiple communities. For those of you who have not heard... They're doing a $400 million hotel what? in Times Square right now. Yeah. It's just unbelievable how his whole thing has just mushroomed. Now, jumping back to your, your work here, and for those who aren't, let me explain a little bit, and you can help me on this. Um, Mass Avenue is a main strip of restaurants and, and stores and a few theaters, used to be a few more, um, that used to stop at a street called College Avenue. That was the end of it. If you were walking Mass Avenue, you went to college and you went back. Something happened that extended that block about three or four more blocks of retail. <laughs> so how did that it's actually, happen? It's just one and a part of a block. Um, well, it feels... <laughs> well, okay. what happened was because it was the arts district and my wife is a conservator and restores oil paintings for a living. She worked at the art museum for 10 years and such. I we decided to buy a building downtown for her thing. And on Mass Avenue is where the Rushman Gallery was. And there was multiple galleries Mm and the Chatterbox. And so we thought it would be great to put her business down there. So I, we bought the building at the end of very end of the interstate past college in the dead end part of college. Angles kind of spokes out of downtown again, lots of retail, lots of restaurants, but then boom, done. And then that block and a half to the highway. I'll never I'll never forget when I was down there kind of working on it, kind of stabilizing it so it wouldn't fall down, actually. David Andercheck, the owner of the Chatterbox, walks up and wanted to know what we were doing. And I said, well, we're going to build a go-go bar here. (laughs) I don't know if he remembers that. (laughs) Well, what you built was not a go-go bar. No, it it turned into Urban Bloom, and then it turned into... uh, a video you know, store. Mm-hmm. We used to screen movies outside there, so the movies have been in our blood for a while. Um, yeah, and now it's Black Market. Black Market, which yeah. is, again, a terrific bar restaurant Yes. Um, at the very end of the block, but now from there all the way down, it's packed with, it's packed full. Um, with some cool places. Yep. So now the block extends even further. Something a little more, maybe even more dramatic happened um, and again, trying to explain to the folks who are listening in Norway and South Africa and uh, mainland China. <laughs> um, <laughs> downtown Indy, and then there's a neighborhood kind of southeast of downtown called Fountain Square. Fountain Square has wonderful duck pin bowling and some cool bars and restaurants and music venues, but it was disconnected from downtown. So there weren't there wasn't foot traffic to go from there. You weren't going to ride a bicycle from downtown to Fountain Square. Then something happened. Yeah. What happened? Brian Payne. Brian, who was a guest <laughs> on a previous podcast. I, I heard that. that yeah. So he, he did the cultural trail to connect all the cultural districts, and Fountain Square was one of them. But nothing would have happened if that were just a um, 
you know, a well, sidewalk to Fountain Square that helped. Well, but well, we bought a building because. Well, we right. knew it was coming, but we bought a building knowing how downtowns expand and how young kids were moving back into the cities. They didn't want an acre of grass to cut every Saturday, and they, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, didn't like the idea of sitting in traffic to get to work. You know, for our commute every day, it's part of their lives that they don't need to spend on that. So you bought a building and decided originally to do what? What did you think that neighborhood was going to need? Well, I, it, it needed a bake. Our city needed a bakery. As I traveled all around the world with all these shows for the last 50 years, mm-hmm. our city didn't have a good bakery. And I thought that we were going to build a bakery. And so uh, one time I was in Louisville on a, at a conference of my wife, her um, AI, American Institute of Con- Conservators had a, a thing in Louisville. And I went down there and I found the Blue Dog Bakery. And I tried to talk them into coming up to Indianapolis and opening a place up here, and they were not interested. But they did agree to help me if I decided to do it. So five or six years later, I was coming out of a meeting about the black market build-out. An architect, Jim Ligenfelter, was across the street. His office was across the street where Bluebeard is. I don't know if any of you know where Bluebeard is, but it's on Virginia Avenue. Um, 647 is the address, and Calvin Fletcher Coffee is in part of the building, and Amelia's Bakery is in the other part, and the Bluebeard is in the middle. So um, when I went to this meeting about, this is before the building was done, before the cultural trail was there, and I looked across the street from this, when I came out of the meeting with Jim Ligenfelter, and there was this building that had glazed block front with slanted in. Mm. It looked like a, a bakery on the East Coast. And I said that to Jim, and he said it was for sale. You couldn't tell because it was all overgrown. The sign had gone down. We went over and looked in the building, you know, in the windows, and it was all boarded up even inside. And the courtyard was all overgrown. The whole street just looked a mess. And so I saw the sign, scraped off the number, called it, and a guy <laughs> went to rebuff with, answered the phone. <laughs> Bob Langer. So now being the big man on campus, <laughs> when he said, oh, it's $500,000, I was thinking, oh, I was just thinking that is insane. And I told him to send me the cut sheet, acted like, oh, no big deal, just send me the cut sheet and we'll talk. But, you know, it was like 500, I was no way I was ever going to do that. Well, he did send it to me and then it turned out it was three buildings. <laughs> and so then it made a lot more sense. And so then we ended up buying it. And we were going to put the bakery in that glazed block building, but the, um, Calvin Fletcher's Coffee, they came to me because they had a little space and they needed a bigger space and wanted me to lease it to them. And I said, well, I'm not going to steal a tenant from down the street. Mm-hmm. I just won't do it. And they said, well, they have the people next door who have a pizza shop that want our space. So it won't, okay. I, won't, I wouldn't be you know, a butcher or someone you know, mm-hmm. um, You don't want to just something. take a business I wouldn't take a business from someone else. And so... Uh, that ended up, that's why Calvin Fletcher's is there. And, of course, we gave him a really low price, and we've kept it low be, just because that's how we are. Sherry doesn't like to hear that, maybe. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just like it's been such, uh, Calvin Fletcher's is such a great neighborhood place. Mm-hmm. So. And so what, but it, for those, again, listening at home, um, it's not just that a group of, you know, Tom's Places thrived, it was that this led to development all along that stretch. You guys were pretty much the first ones in there um, with Bluebeard, but. Well, an example of how we, how we help our tenants. So he came and he had someone do a design for him and it was gonna be $130,000 
to do the build-out for his thing. They were going to move the water and the bathrooms, and they were going to do all this stuff. They were going to replace the whole ceiling, even though it only leaked on one part of it. And so my son and I, Ed, we went in there and we said, look, we can do this a different way. And then we worked up some numbers, and we said for $36,000, we can do this whole thing. We're going to leave the bathroom here. We showed him the drawing that we had. We said, we can do this, and you can open, and, you know, we think this is all you need, and he agreed, and so he did it. Of course, we had to finance him to do it, but uh, um, right. it was really great, though, and it's been great ever since. And it's, been, it's one of the leading restaurants in the city now. Oh, not hey, that was the coffee shop. That was the coffee shop. <laughs> the <laughs> restaurant, though, Bluebeard is Bluebeard actually. Is. We've gotten four James right. Abby Mayor. So Sherry and I are majority owners, but we let the chef, the baker, who is my nephew, and our son each own parts of the other half. And so um, they're owners, and they act like it, and they they love it. And if you go there, you'll see why it's such a great place. It's fantastic. Um, you were also in the, <laughs> the very building we are in right now oh. has some uh, connection too. So it yeah, not? it uh, when it first came here, it used to be a cafeteria, if you remember. Um, and then Rick bought it, and he was building it out and somebody left and it was just like uh, uh in a state of chaos and he asked me to come in and be the uh construction manager and get this building done and so i worked here for three months and helped him finish the whole when it, the original one before it burnt down and not up here but very similar to this he rick wants everything built to last forever or at least 100 years and that's <laughs> that's how he does everything and it's kind of uh, different than say the chatterbox or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 uh, oh, I'm sorry, or uh, Ricky Eichholz because I built a bar, uh, Ike and Jonesy's downtown for Ricky Eichholz. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the entertainment business. I had a theater shop, you know, mm -hmm. a, a shop where we build stuff. We did some shows, but I mean, it's just kind of funny that oh. I, I did this place we were talking earlier Paige and I about you know ideas that get pushed aside or ideas that don't quite make it into the mix now one of the things you did recently seemed to be an idea that some people may have thought you know what he's an idiot maybe that's not a great idea <laughs> um, but here it is let's talk about the idol the idol a point of view right so between Fletcher Place and Fountain Square the interstate cut through about a quarter of a mile of you know concrete and bridges and it's really loud and it's horrible so I would walk to the bank and in between the north south east and west divisions of this thing there was a brow of a hill that had been planted 10 years earlier you know by keeping Indianapolis beautiful and uh it just looked really cool to me it was all overgrown so I climbed over the guardrail and wandered through the bushes and the I can't even remember what you're calling and got out to the end of it and there Here's the interstate going over both, you know, three layers of interstate, north, south, east, and west. And I'm going, God, this should be a viewing stand. We should be able to sit here and watch the traffic. Well, who was the first person to say to you, um, maybe you've been hitting the margaritas a little too I hard? I think probably, probably my wife, Sherry, but maybe not. <laughs> probably. But it was... Um, so I just kept, and it took a long time. It took five years to get permission to do it. And then it took them another year to get, um, uh, to pass the legal paperwork between the Federal Highway Administration, the Indiana State Department of Transportation, and the city's uh, Department of Public Works. So it took a total of six years to, to actually get it approved. And after the fifth year, they, when they said I could do it, I had to raise the money. 
like that's going to be the easy part? I don't think so. And of course, they made me do everything according to their standards. So instead of costing, you know, five or six thousand dollars, the budget was eighty-two thousand dollars. And this is something with no—I mean, it's not like there's an entry fee. It's not like there's a profit. Oh yeah, there's no profit center or nothing. It's just—it's actually to to meld the two neighborhoods back together again. And it got picked up by NPR, so it was on NPR. Wait, wait, don't tell me. And the people didn't choose us. They (laughs) they chose they chose a whatever her name Pence's uh, towel charm bracelet right. store or something. It right. was, it was, it was, really it was silly. one of those, which is the real story. Yeah. Which is the real story. But then it got picked up by uh, Sunday morning, CBS Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they've come twice and with a whole crew and uh, they're going to do a story on and, it probably this fall. For a visual, this is basically seats, a, yeah. a park and well, it seats from the old Bush, Bush stadium, stadium. Right. And um, so, and, you sit and you can overlook traffic and just watch cars. Well, you, it seems really silly, but your blood pressure is going down while you're just sitting because there. you're not there. And in those traffic. people, yeah, are honking. Semis are going by, and it's just like you can just feel the tension in those people. And it's kind of what's the German word for it? Friggin Schädel or something. <laughs> But no, when when the I remember when the I don't remember this, but reading about when the Pennsylvania Turnpike was first built, which was one of the first major highways, people used to go out with their lawn chairs to watch traffic. It was an entertainment source. <laughs> you know? Well, that so you're a part of history. I, well, there's precedent probably. for this. Wow. Um, <laughs> what as we do with every uh, episode, uh, I'm sure you have questions. There are slips of paper on your on your tables. Jot down some questions. We're going to address some of them in the second half for now. uh, And we're going to bring them back in the second half. But thank Tom for his insight. (laughs) And we're going to to introduce uh, our musical guests uh, for this evening, the Half Step Sisters. Katie Burke and Julia Conway, both Indianapolis natives, joined Musical Forces in 2008, exploring folk and acoustic roots music. Since then, they've performed on NPR's A Prairie Home Companion duet competition, where they placed third out of a mere 1,000 applicants. They are joined by DeMar Conway on guitar. Please welcome the Half Step Sisters. to tune, right? Uh, the song that we're going to do is the only true love song we have, the only happy ending, so the, the rest is all heartache, right? This is a song that Mark and I wrote called Honeybee. He just changed his strings yesterday. So. Special occasion. Okay. <laughs>
one more for right now. This is one called You and Him, and Katie and I wrote this. Uh, uh, we're, I'll let you decide who's the angel and who's the devil. <laughs> We're going to take a brief intermission and we will be back with your questions, with our questions, with maybe some answers. We'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs> and we're back for the second half of Lou Harry Gets Real. This episode, I want to bring uh, the Half Step Sisters back because we've got some questions we want to know. They will play some more music. We're going to hear some more music later in the show, but right now we have some questions. 
Yeah. Um, you, uh, the the group of us were actually chatting at the the table, the talent table, prior, and I was eavesdropping. And two of you are actually classically trained, and was talking about how uh, the the kind of uh, folksy Appalachian sound was not something that naturally you naturally gravitated towards. What? When did you fall in love with it? Like this particular? Did you walk into a Cracker Barrel and was just like, yes, <laughs> this is my people now? I just that, I say that well, I love it. I, I realize that sounded really those rocking but. chairs are the best. <laughs> <laughs> I would say. Um, well, they met me. Oh. Yeah, come on. I mean, uh, so I had a friend call me up, and I was in school singing opera and. I started playing ukulele because I'm an elementary music teacher, and she said, hey, I have these friends who are singing this folk music. You should come play your ukulele uh, with folk music. And I was like, okay, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then, of course, uh, the big, oh, brother, where art thou? I think that mm-hmm. kind of got a lot of that back up with our our culture. So that kind of got, and it was just a new chapter for me and a new musical challenge. You don't have music in front of you reading music and telling you what to do, you have to use your ears. So it's a, it was a new challenge for me. Either one of the songs, both of the songs we heard in the first half, if you had told me that this is a classic song that's been you know recorded by this person, this person, this person, I would have totally believed you. Is there, is, what is, the, is there any thought process to how you make a song sound that timeless? <laughs> Uh, we try to be cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a child of the '80s, but also my parents. I would I have to give my parents credit because they would on road trips we would listen to Hank Williams, Patsy Cline, Ray Charles, Carol King, Ella Fitzgerald, just different greats from different generations. So that that starts to impact you. It all starts to meld together. By the time you get to a certain age, you're like I love these songs, I love that song. So it goes through the filter of you by by way of imitating the things that you love you kind of create this cohesiveness to your sound i'm always interested in the range of kinds of audience i mean we have this wonderful first of all very attractive audience in front of us right now <laughs> in an intimate in an intimate space but i know you guys have played bigger audiences you've probably played smaller ones you've busked those of you who know what busking means, out there on the street playing. Can you talk about uh, how you adapt to different spaces and give us a sense of the range of kind of places you've played? Well, um, uh, busking on the street, I mean, you know, you're only as loud as the people standing in front of you can hear, I guess. <laughs> so that's always challenging, but um, we've played all kinds of places. And then uh, being amplified is a, a really big benefit. When you busk for a long time, you're like, oh, this is really nice. I don't have to yell. And um, What's the average busking tip that gets thrown in the jar? <laughs> Depends how drunk people are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and how much money they spend at the bar, and then how, you know. How much changes in their pocket. Has it, has, I'm curious if that's really, I don't know if you would be able to answer this, but how much of that has changed now that we're in a credit card culture? How that has impacted oh, busking. Yeah, it's been a Too while much. since I have busked, so no. I should try that out and see. <laughs> I've never seen anybody with an iPhone square uh, <laughs> on the street corner, but I bet that exists. Yeah. <laughs> so un- any unusual gigs, any ones that you particularly stick in mind that were maybe a smallish audience? Uh, I mean, talking about Fountain Square neighborhood and Fletcher Place neighborhood, we used to play at Dino's Vino a lot, uh, supported a lot of acoustic roots music, and sometimes you would fill the 
fill the restaurant. And then sometimes you'd be two guys that were out of town that heard about Virginia <laughs> Avenue. So you just never know. Yep. But do you do you adjust your show your set when there's two people in the audience, or, or are totally. you just playing? Yeah, I think if there's two people, you engage them more. You talk about them, and you're, you're, you talk to them and see what they're interested mm-hmm. in, and you kind of in, get to. It kind of becomes like total request live. Yes. <laughs> and it's just a couple people, you know, that they start, you know, they want to hear like Rocky Top or like, do you know any, uh, you know any Carol King? And uh, we got a couple bars of, uh, you know. Do you ever pretend that one of your songs is an obscure B-side from somebody? <laughs> I've accidentally set up a song the wrong way. Like, this is an original. And they're like, no, it's not, Katie. We're going to do a Beatles song. I'm like, I didn't mean it. It was was an honest mistake. That's on YouTube, We cannot uh, claim the Beatles. We corrected her. Don't worry. Yes. (laughs) They keep me in line. (laughs) Um, uh, The lyrics are completely charming. Do do any of you have, like, any experience in prose or poetry or, or anything of the like? I love creative writing, and these two, the way we usually work is Mark will come up with an amazing chord progression and a groove, and Julia will hear a melody, and then I have to come up with a story, and I write lyrics. That's not how it always goes, but I've always loved lyrics, and I love creative writing. I'm not taking all the credit for the lyrics or anything, but that's that's my, you know, some of the lyrics that I come up with have to do with that, creative writing. I know that, that one of you is a music teacher, and the other teaches, in schools, and the other teaches music at uh, a guitar center. Tell us... What guitar you, works. She's going to get in guitar trouble. Works. Guitar, <laughs> works. guitar <laughs> works. The place to take your pick. <laughs> what do you wish people knew? One, a message to parents of students uh, at school. Is there something you wish they would know about music, a music program, or how to deal with teaching? And on the other side, uh, what should some, when should somebody decide they're going to take guitar lessons? Um, Actually, I like that question. Or music lessons. You should not dive into guitar as an elementary child, I feel. Um, and Small hands. And, <laughs> you know, children at the age of five should only really typically be able to match five notes is the average. So if you, you know, it's too early to say, oh, they can't sing or things like that. So just keep encouraging. And if they want to play guitar, that's fine too. But just know that that's a hard, that's two separate things with your hands. It's a very hard instrument to start on. Mm-hmm. Yes. What I, I like to say about music is it's, it's a fabric of our everyday lives. And we don't say to kids, oh, you're no good at math. Let's just stop right here with that. Or you're right. no good at language arts. It's, it's an important skill that can be um, trans. All the skills can transfer to other parts of learning, and also for some children, it's a form of self-expression. Some of them, it's going to be their thing in life, part of their identity, and some of them is just an escape. Like once a week, this is how I get my stress out. So I think there's value in it, and I I try not to judge it from a perspective of uh, talent or no mm. talent. It's like let's figure out your relationship to music. Yeah. Right, so it's not a yeah, that's good. So it's not it's not quit if you're not going to be a star, right? Right. Yes. Because we sure haven't. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Besides, think... apart from later in the show when we're going to hear a couple of more songs, where else can folks hear you over the next couple of months? Um, we are we play around uh, different places. We're going to be at Mallow Run Winery in October, but we're playing at this really exciting. Um, 
or October 12th, what did I say, the wrong date? Um, in this new music festival, or new-ish, in Lafayette, Indiana, second year, year We Bichet, it's a world music festival, we're going to be there at um, October, or no, September 27th and 28th, yeah. and we get to play, I think, four times throughout that weekend, we get to put on a harmony workshop, so that's really exciting for us, and we played at the Aristocrat as well. <laughs> and you can also hear them on your way home if you purchase their CD yeah. on the way out. That's another opportunity. And you just recorded another, correct? Yeah, we're, we're, we just finished recording a five-song EP, and um, now it's just in the production part of putting it all together. So we are very excited about that. And when should we be able to hear that? End of September. End of September. <laughs> That's our plan. We hope. You can find out about it through... All the cool social media things. Facebook, Instagram. <laughs> if, if you do follow us on Facebook, whether or not you're um, actually a Facebook member, you can still just Google us and see the dates that will come up. You don't have to log in. Great. And yeah, we'll definitely let you know every time we're playing next. The Instagrams. <laughs> we hope to have a CD release party in the fall. We haven't set the date. Okay. It's all coming together right now. <laughs> we have uh, a pile of questions oh, wow. from our audience here for, for many of our guests. Um, we're going to go through some of those now. Tom uh, Batista is back on the at the table. Welcome, Tom, back. Hello. And Paige is here. Uh, somebody asked, uh, they want to know more about the movie theater and any other future plans. There's going to be a new movie theater happening, folks. Yes. It's a, um, we'll have three separate screens. One will be a 200-seater, one will be a 60-seater, and one will be a 45-seater. That will enable us to have, you know, we're not going to get first-run blockbuster movies. We're going to show independent film, uh, more creative film, and we're going to try to uh, have talks before them or after them about the filmmakers. And so what we're trying to do is make our city aware of the film industry uh, and be able to hopefully inspire young people even you know even the kids in the neighborhood to be involved and realize the value of film cool. uh, and that is going to be in the give, Windsor Park the neighborhood so it's uh, northeast section of downtown if you go out Massachusetts Avenue after you get past the spay neuter clinic if anybody knows where that is <laughs> uh, if you just keep to the right, that uh, that area on one side of the street is Spades Park, and on the other side is Windsor Park. There's a library there, the Windsor Park Library. It's a, one of our few Carnegie uh, libraries that still in existence. It was built in 1911, and we're building right across the street from that. So that's the location. And a targeted opening date for uh, ballpark? Well, my son says December <laughs> of this year. I'm saying first quarter of next. <coughs> Uh, Paige, a attendee wants to know, uh, how do you go about creating your plays musicals? Do you start with a topic, story, song, character, and build from there? Build the whole production from there? What's your process usually? Um, typically, um, I, I have done primarily adaptations or uh, have worked with another playwright, so I usually... I usually start with with the book in mind, whether I'm starting to write the book as is. Um, and we said before, you, you adapted Jane Eyre, adapted but you Jane. also have gone more in the pop culture world, yes. including... In, 
what, um, what, 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 what are you no, referencing? Well, <laughs> you, you've done some musicals that yeah, are... Yes, uh, I did uh, Lobby Channel, um, which was actually based on an NPR, uh, an NP, an NPR uh, radio uh, program on This American Life. Um, I did Bomb on a Bus, which was uh, a parody of... Uh, the Keanu Reeves movie Speed, yeah, yeah. Um, which was crying yeah, out for a musical yeah. adaptation. <laughs> and then uh, I uh, co- I collaborated with uh, my friend Zach Nidich on a friend show called Holy Ficus, which was an original uh, based on a man who really loves his plant. <laughs> the plant dies and he goes to heaven and hell to find it and finds himself. It's it's I write strange things, um, or I help people write strange things. Uh, well, typically I start with like a, the subtext of what I'm trying to say, if that makes the sense. Like if I have, you can write about love, and it's like this vague thing because it means something different to everybody else. But if you like make it specific, like oh I I love that lady's sandals. What's it connected to? A polka dotted dress. I'm like, I'm going to write a descriptive thing about this friendly little lady with a warm face, uh, making it a pretty lyric. Like it's just so the specific. Some I think. It's what I'm hearing is that if you're writing a general song, it's going to feel like a general song. But if you write specific, sometimes it could be actually more powerful and more moving. Yes, it's yeah, it's it's kind of. being clear in, in in ways that I'm not able to be right now because <laughs> musicals are too big. Um, but yeah, it's just start. It's starting off simple and making the idea more broad. And 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 after maybe two years, you'll have a two act musical or maybe ninety minutes. Who knows? Um, <laughs> for for the band, what was it like to play on Prairie Home Companion? Uh, and the question was, was Garrison Keillor there? And I have to ask the third follow-up question. Was he as nasty as musicians say he is? <laughs> That's actually a great question. We were all of the above, uh, frightened. Thank goodness, no, I did not pee my pants. Um, we were challenged. and It was a lot of fun. It was a blast. It was really cool to be a part of something like that. And uh, he was very kind to us, and uh, he invited us, all the people who were in the duet competition, we got to go to his home uh, after the show, and uh, people jammed at his home, and uh, had a whole, I got to have a whole philosophical, well, and Mark was there on his veranda, um, <laughs> talking about the importance of music education, and no, he was very kind from our experience. We all sang hymns around uh, his piano, yeah. and uh, actually Molly Tuttle uh, was there with her father, if you know who Molly Tuttle is. Great guitar player. Uh, yeah, she's she's one of the next big things, so check her out if you don't know who she is. Um, but she was a young teenager at that time. Um, but yeah, so we got to jam with her, and Richard Dorsky uh, hanging out with him yeah. on on piano and, and talking about things, other things that he was doing was really cool. And uh, Pat Donahue was their guitar player. And, uh, you know, so I, I got to kind of rub some elbows with him. And uh, I, uh, I played for him my version of uh, Freight Train. And uh, he said, perfect. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> but thanks, you know, it was a good, a good compliment. But yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and really a, a kind of a highlight, certainly for me in my musical uh, experience. 
Same, same. Um, just kind of to add on, Garrison was so gracious, and he his love for music is obvious. And we were the ones who were excusing ourselves from his home at late late at night <laughs> because he wanted to sing all the songs. And we, um, yeah, he, he was like, "Do this, do that." And I said, "Well, hey, Garrison, what would you like to sing?" He said. Oh, I'd like to sing them all. <laughs> it was so sweet. It was so sweet. He was he was awesome. It was just a wonderful experience for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, a question for me. Uh, somebody said I've always read when you were in IBJ, the Indianapolis Business Journal, about your theater bus trips uh, to Chicago uh, and elsewhere, or to the Humana Festival of New American Plays. But I never could go. Oh, sorry. Uh, will you offer these opportunities again? Um, that depends on bus tour companies asking me to join them. Uh, that was a partnership we did when I was uh, arts and entertainment editor at the Indianapolis Business Journal with a company called Interlude Tours. If you want to call them and say, when's Lou Harry's next bus trip? <laughs> you are more than welcome. We did some wonderful things and that was a great opportunity because what we would do is usually pair something interesting. Like Chicago Shakespeare was doing a production of Sunday in the Park with George. So we took folks oh, to the art museum yeah. to see the painting experienced the painting, and then we went to see the show and then met with some of the creatives and toured the theater afterwards. So we were able to put those things together. On the way up, we talked about, we took a, a period of time and talked about the show. On the way back, we got feedback, we did giveaways, we did trivias, great time on the buses. We did a couple of trips like that, including Escape to Margaritaville, which was, uh, was very fun to see a group just partying with that show. Um, a good time. Uh, I'd love to do more of those, and uh, we'll keep an eye out for those opportunities. But if you know somebody who runs a tour company who is interested in doing them, do let me know or let them know. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Um, how did you convince Sherry to join this life? <laughs> good question. Good question. Run some forensics and see who wrote that one. What's the day today? <laughs> it's 43 years yeah. now. <laughs> but, uh, and that's since we were married, but yeah, I courted her for like six years, I think, <laughs> before we got married. But yeah, we met at IU. Uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the other, other properties you've been involved with and helped make happen. Somebody mentioned Milk Tooth and King Doe. Oh yeah, here. well Milk Have you been to King Doe yet, by the way? Yes. Anyway, so again, we, we run we tend to find people who are really passionate about what they are doing and we believe in what they're doing. And so uh, John and Ashley Brooks um, lived up above the bakery at Bluebeard at Amelia's, and he wanted to do a grilled cheese shop. So I was trying to help them find a place. So we had looked at the building where they are now, and the people raised the price of it so I couldn't afford to buy it so we kind of forgot that for a minute and then Sam Sutton a good friend of ours found this building in Fountain Square it was an old church that he was going to buy and turn into a theater a cinema and he wanted to have some food part of it and so there was a house next to it that he could buy so he called me and asked me if I still had the people that wanted to do the grilled cheese shop he didn't even know it was John Brooks or John didn't even have a name at the time and so I said yeah we I still have them you can take them if he you know if you can do a thing there that's great so we went with John and Ashley and Sam and looked at this house and they walked through it and they said no this just didn't it and Sam said well do you have any other places he felt that they were passionate about what they were doing he could tell 
And so um, they said, yeah, we looked at this building down here, but we explained to them how they found an oil tank and they raised the price, you know, a bunch more and we just couldn't afford it. And so we all walked down there and looked at it and he became our partner. And the funny thing is he didn't have to keep me involved in the thing. He could have just done it on his own, but he let us, you know, be, and we became a partner and now we've been partners for four or five years and it's just been a great relationship. What else is on the horizon? Um, well, the... Besides the, the film, oh, uh, the Bonnegut Museum is currently purchasing a building on Indiana Avenue, mm -hmm. uh, and it's um, they they've asked us to put a cafe in it, and so we've decided to do that. So there's going to be a cafe in that building that'll help bring people into the building and be able to experience the you know the Bonnegut Museum along with having a great you know farm to table great uh, breakfast lunch place. So it's, that's going to be a great thing. And I, I don't know what else. I can't think of anything. Okay. I'm sure. You will think of something. I'm, we I'm will. Sure. And we always, we want to keep doing things. And people say, when am I going to retire? I don't think so. <laughs> um, you want to hear a little more music? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Folks, let's listen to the Half Step Sisters. And I should have asked that. Is there any relation? I mean, are you are not in fact stepsisters of any kind, are you? We are are not. It's a music pun, you know. We did have one person figure out that you could actually be a half stepsister, but it involves incest and remarrying. But someone did figure it out. Is that like I'm my own grandpa? That's <laughs> yeah. right. My own grandpa. It's like a cousin, brother. Gotcha. This one's actually Mark's song. Would you like to set it up? This is uh, this is the longest title in the um, Half Step Sisters catalog. It's called uh, "Feeling More Like I Do Right Now Than I Did a Little While Ago," <laughs> and I think we all can relate. <laughs>
This is where we all start chanting more, more, more. Got another one? We do. Great. We will do one more. I, uh, I, I wish I could claim it, but it is a Paul McCartney uh, tune. Uh, this one's called Goodbye. Thought that would be appropriate to end the evening with. That's it for this episode of Lou Harry Gets Real. I'd like to thank producer Patrick Chastain. <laughs> Nate Neff on sound. Big thanks to our sponsor, uh, the Aristocrat Pub. Thank you to the staff here, bartenders, and especially to Eric, who was in his last night here working at the Aristocrat before moving to Italy, ladies and gentlemen. to thank Paige Scott. Brian, Warren Zevon, Orla Guthrie, Dave Bromberg, and everyone else I've ever ever really dug in concert. Uh, thanks to Rachel Pratt, Sue German, and the guy who went to the Gen Con tabletop gaming convention and cosplayed as Santa Claus. Thanks also to journalists around the world, to newspaper subscribers around the world, and to whoever is going to tell me where the best puffy tacos are in San Antonio, since I'll be there at a conference in a few weeks. And of course, thanks to all the attendees here at the Aristocrat. Thanks to all the listeners out there in the podcast. 
Thanks to all of you. Keep an open mind and an open heart, and we hope to uh, be with you very soon. Thank you. Yeah.